Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, one of the BMJ's clinical editors and one of the hosts of Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs. The BMJ recently published an analysis article on the time needed to treat, proposing that guideline developers be more aware of how much physician time their recommendations really require. The article received a lot of attention, and we talked to one of the authors, Mina Johansson, for Deep Breath In. It was a really great conversation about the implications of measuring GP time and how this might help us think about the role of GPs in our healthcare systems. If you enjoyed that episode and want to hear more about thorny primary care issues, then please subscribe to Deep Breath In on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's that episode of Deep Breath In. Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. Get out your stopwatches. Today we're racing the clock to cover everything you need to know about the time needed to treat, or TNT. It is a huge challenge for GPs to balance the need to address individual concerns of each patient while also acting on the slew of relevant clinical recommendations that largely operate on a population health level, all in the space of a 10 or 15 minute consultation. It's as if guideline making bodies assume GPs and other clinicians have unlimited time, even though we all know this is far from true. In a recent BMJ analysis article, Mina Johansson, Gordon Gaia, and Victor Montori argue that guideline-setting bodies should explicitly consider the time clinicians need to implement the host of relevant preventive care guidelines, or the time needed to treat. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ, here today with Tom Nolan while Navjoy is out. Hi, Tom. Yes, hi. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Um, I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP near London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi. And hi, Mina. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, yes, so I'm Mina Johansson. I'm a general practitioner working for 13 years at a, a healthcare center in, the, in a small town on the Swedish West Coast. I've been working within Cochrane for, uh, since 2017, and uh, I'm also leading a new global center for sustainable healthcare. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Fantastic, well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your article. It's been making quite the splash. Yes, it's been fantastic. It's been quite overwhelming with a lot of um, attention and and um, and people reaching out to me. So that's been absolutely fantastic. Great. So can we start by just asking you to describe the concept of TNT here, the rationale for the concept, including kind of a little bit about your thinking on how GPs currently make decisions, and just giving a little bit more depth uh, on the concept to our listeners. Sure. Uh, so 
The time needed to treat is a new method or, or a new concept uh, aimed to help guideline panels to consider clinician time as a finite resource that they need to carefully prioritize uh, when, when they issue guideline recommendations. And the reason that this is needed is because currently there is a massive mismatch between what is being recommended by clinical practice guidelines and the time clinicians have available to provide their recommended care. For example, there's a recent study from the US uh, which estimated that uh, for primary care physicians to follow the guidelines that apply to their patients, they would need to work 27 hours per day. Um, there's an older study from Norway uh, which estimated that if, if general practitioners would follow the European guidelines for hypertension, uh, they, they would not be able to do anything else. They, they, it would take more general practitioners than available in Norway to follow just the hypertension guidelines. So the, the time needed to treat um, concept is, is like a, a suggestion to, to, to find a way out of this, to, to start finding a way out of this, to a constructive way to help guideline panels consider this issue. Because I think, I mean, we're all in the same boat. We want to, to make care better for our patients. Um, so in short, TNT is estimated it's a very simple method, um, and it's estimated by considering the time needed to provide the recommended intervention to each individual with the fraction of the population eligible for the intervention as a proportion of the clinician time av available in the relevant context. Tom, I wonder how, how that kind of lands with you and whether you've ever felt like you're staring yeah. down a tsunami. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be addressing one of the things that as GPs we we see every day is this this overwhelming demand and increasing demand and and yeah that tension that you feel like we've always been asked to do more in from every direction and knowing that you can't do it but probably not having the uh, I suppose knowing you can't do it, not doing it like we none of us all follow the guidelines all the time in fact you know, rarely do we follow them at all, perhaps. Um, and this is perhaps just giving us some a, a, a branch to um, to hold on to and say, well, maybe there's maybe this is the way out because there needs to be a, a it's a problem that needs to be solved, doesn't it? Um, addressing this real problem. But I, th I think that, it, I mean, it's a balance there because what happens now, I think that many people, many of us general practitioners become so disillusionized, like it's it's no point in following the, the guidelines at all. But but there is, I mean, we, we should work evidence-based. So I think it's it's this balance between like, actually like questioning how it is now and not become nihilistic or, or yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I It's true because the, the if you start to to say, well, uh, I can't follow the guidelines; it's just impossible. Then, then where does was, where does that leave you um, in your practice? Yeah, mm, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, and Mina, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this kind of how you think about balancing population health needs um, and kind of the care that we understand is evidence based on a population level with that kind of nuance of individual patient care and maybe even drawing on some of your um, recent thoughts in an editorial about the Nordic trial. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is a very complex question and I, I wanna be careful with my wording to not get misinterpreted in this, but I think 
I mean, what, what's happened during the last 50 years or so is that the medical territory has sort of expanded to primary prevention for a larger and larger proportion of the population at quite low risk. Um, and this is intuitively appealing because it's much, it seems much better to prevent uh, disease before it has happened than to wait for people to suffer. But the consequence, I think, as soon as we go to primary prevention for for some for people with low risk, we end up including a large proportion of the population, and the time time cost of that will be massive. Um, and I think one of the problems with guidelines and the or the whole evidence ecosystem from primary research, evidence synthesis, guidelines, policy making, quality metrics, financial incentives, and and so on. This whole e- ecosystem is. Very, we are very poor at consider opportunity costs. We are very poor at thinking about resources as finite. We are very poor at understanding what we do in medicine through a lens of sustainability. And I think this contributes to it. So, like as one example, another example of this, it's. I mean, everyone is talking about the obesity epidemic, and and I I, I agree that it's probably a big big problem from a, from a public health perspective. But I I read this USPSTF guidelines on behavioral interventions uh, for weight reduction for people with obesity, so everyone above uh, BMI 30. Um, And they recommended these really, really intense behavioral interventions. It's between uh, 12 to 24 sessions the first year, between 15 minutes to two hours each. And that's only the first year, and they were multiple years. Uh, and it's this is for 40% of the population in the U.S. have obesity. Um, and the effect was, after after one year, the effect was a, a weight reduction of, I think, two, 2.5 kilos or something around that. And that, that lowered to, after two years, it was 1.5 kilos weight reduction from these behavioral interventions. Very, very resource intense. Um, and then... That was with with the intervention, so we don't even actually know what happens when the intervention stops and follow up after. And I think, like it's, I think that the, what happens is that we believe that okay, so maybe this doesn't have a huge effect, but it doesn't hurt. Like, and it's a good, it's a good thing. It's sort of, it's it just it feels good. <laughs> but if we take a step back and consider the opportunity costs of this, it would be. It would be massive. I mean, imagine forty percent of the U.S. population undergoing these interventions. It's it's just massive. Uh, so I think that the problem lies in this inability to consider the opportunity costs of what we recommend. This development within medicine, that like, the expansion of medical territory to include primary prevention of low-risk populations, it has had major consequences for healthcare and for societies at large. But there's been no sort of deliberate process where the community has been included in, is this what we want or not? I mean, I am, as you hear, I'm skeptic to this, but but I am not the one who should decide if, the, if we should do this or not. It should be like the community should come together and say, is this a good uh, use of our common resources? Is this a good way to do it? Or should we do it in another way? Can I make a shout back to, I think it was our second or third episode um, with Iona Heath. Um, where she talked about this exact um, thing when we were, but in this case, in the context of fear, wasn't it? And um, how we use fear to um, to get people to do what we think is best. <laughs> um, are, are you, can I ask you, a, well, I want two questions. I want to make a case. I'm going to try and be the, the kind of nice guideline or other guideline group kind of, um, you know, arguing against you. But also um, I want to ask you first, um, 
is this public health? Do, do you do you, what's your view on public health? And you know, should, are you sort of against the current kind of perceived wisdom in in public health? And should we just have less public health and more healthcare? No, I think rather, I think I'm more what I'm. Again, I'm talking about my personal views here, and which I think I totally accept that other people can have differing views, opposing views with good arguments to support them. So this is a complex topic. But I want to say that I am in my general view is that I think that uh, healthcare should not expand more. Uh, probably maybe we should do less. Um, but public health is is crucial and important, but the only way for prevention is not to go one individual at a time within healthcare. In fact, healthcare is not that good at primary prevention. If, like, for, to, to give one example, um, I read that um, if the best case scenario, screening for lung cancer in the US is estimated to save about 12,000 lives a year, uh, best case scenario estimates, but and in interventions at the societal level to decrease smoking is estimated to save 160,000 deaths per year in the US. So it's 10, more than 10 times as many lives to a much lower cost and without the harms of overdiagnosis and overtreatment and, and psychosocial consequences. So I think that, I mean, we, in our culture, we have a very, very deeply rooted tendency to think about all, all solutions at the individual level. That's sort of our lens to everything. But in this case, I think we have mountains of evidence that this is probably not the best approach uh, when it comes to primary prevention of low-risk populations. So I'm not against public health, rather the opposite of what you said. Like, I think, I think that more money should probably go to public health and less to healthcare, but it, it's, not, it's what you do with it. Um, uh, thank you so much for bringing that in, because I think that was the second piece of, you know, discussing the concept of TNT, which is that if we reframe the effectiveness of our interventions relative to the time costs and other opportunity costs, it might change the strength of an overall recommendation. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that before... Tom, you and itching to represent, represent guidelines. The, yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's good with with some critical questions. I think. Uh, well, I uh, so to be. I, I think it, it's important to make clear that the time needed to treat estimates would be only one piece of the puzzle. So there could be, um, there could definitely be a recommendations where the TNT estimates are very high, so it takes a lot of clinician time, but it would still be worth it to recommend the intervention. And the opposite, it could be could be instances where the where the time requirements are very small, but it would still not be be a good idea to recommend the intervention. So it's only one piece of the puzzle. So I'm gonna try and yeah, make the case perhaps that you know nice, certainly I'm sure other guideline groups already do this to some extent. Um, so they have on each nice guideline, they have the rationale and impact it's on their website on, on each gu guideline. And against each recommendation, um, they do make a comment about the impact on current practice. So, um, you know, so there is something, and perhaps the argument is, you know, it's, it's perhaps false to try to put a number on it because it's so variable. Like for one patient, it might be a, a two-minute thing, or they could do it themselves. They don't need to see a GP. Whereas mm. for somebody else, they might need, um, 
you know, quite a long, relatively long time. And so um, isn't it good enough to have experts on the committee, including those in primary care, sort of making a judgment and feeding that in in this way? Um, yeah. So, so first, first of all, I have the, the highest respect for that. This is an issue that many people are working on and have done like great a lot of really good work uh, on this issue already. So it's not, um, I don't think that the time you treat concept is like the golden key to solve this problem. I think that it needs a lot more work. And for us, it's basically just like a first, this is an idea. What do you think about it? Like, do you want to develop it? Do you want to help us test it, try it, criticize it, find new ways? I mean, we don't feel like we own this idea. We want people to use it or develop it and change it uh, in any way they they want. So uh, first, I wanted to say that. And then, um, like, for example, in health economy analysis, there's there's also some work around, like, how to help prioritize between uh, between different different guidelines in a, in a better way. So, um, but obviously, I mean, like, we still have a problem because these, like the, this study from the US saying that primary care physicians would need to work 27 hours a day, that was from last year. So, like, I mean, this, even all the stuff that we have done hasn't helped enough. Like we still have this problem and it's massive. And I think that, the, I mean, many guidelines, NICE, for example, they have the resources to make very advanced analysis, health economy analysis and impact analysis with, together with the guidelines. But for in a lot of other areas, like, for example, the region where I live, there's no health economy analysis tied to the guidelines that that I work with. So there's, a, um, yeah. So basically what I'm saying is that I think that it's very, all initiatives to solve this is are fantastic. And it's really great that that NICE is working on this too. I think that there's still more work to be done. And I think that a very simple method that could be applied very easily, that it's very concrete and sort of make you get it, what's this about, is can be helpful, uh, even if there are more advanced uh, analysis yeah. that, that do uh, similar stuff. I wonder if Does it's... Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, or? yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I wonder if it's... Um, well, what, as a GP, I often feel that the time that I would spend with a patient if they brought something up isn't perhaps valued by the system as much as patients do and I do. And I think it's important to try to go into the appropriate depth and with, with a patient for any anything they bring up. And um, and perhaps some of the some of the guidelines so go, oh, well it wouldn't take that much longer. So we'll we'll, you know, it won't really make a difference. Whereas you know, to do things properly in in a in a way that we want to with patients and to have a you know shared decision making and all those sort of principles that we aspire to takes time and um, perhaps what what you're suggesting with time needed to treat is to put maybe a more realistic time on on, on those things as well as trying to quantify it. I'm I'm not sure it's a more realistic thing of what actually happens in practice because I think that's it would not be a good idea to to sort of get into like measure exactly how long time things take in, in practice and my, and use that to micromanage what happens in the consultation i think that would be a terrible idea i think look the, in my in my view what what tnt would help with is to to help the guideline panels understand what would happen if the clinicians actually did what we are telling them to do then of course that will never happen like no mm. e even even if the number of recommendations were cut down by 
I mean, all guidelines wouldn't be fully implemented anyway. So it's not a realistic number of what TNTs are not sort of realistic estimates of what actually happens in 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 in, uh, in clinical care. It's more of helping the guideline developers, the panels understand like so if if what we are telling people to do, mm-hmm. if they would actually do it, what would that cost in terms of opportunity costs? Um, I guess it reminds me this concept with we we talk often on the podcast about the role of the GP and the, maybe the expanding role of the GP or maybe ill-defined role. Does this help mm. us to, to, to move that forward a little bit? Yeah, um, I think this relates a lot to the uh, what we talked about before, about the, the um, expansion of medical territory during the last 50, 50 years, which in some way has been positive, but in some way also have now this really um, complex negative consequences for the population. Um, I know that in the UK you have... Now you're you're suffering a crisis for GPs. Like patients can't get access to their GPs even when they have really really strong care needs, uh, and I, and that's a crisis that we see everywhere. Um, so I and this I think that TNT uh, can help in 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 making helping us take a step back and reflect on what is it that we are doing and. And what do we want to do? Like, because this is, this I think should be a decision that we make together as a community. How do we use these resources? I mean, we are working in high risk. I'm working in a very high resource set setting, yet I don't have time to care for my patients. And how can we solve that? I mean, we could, we could spend, we could hire taxes by 50% and, and spend all of that on healthcare and, and educate many, many more GPs. That could be one solution, but do we want that? Do we as a community want that? Or, or do we as a community see, can we see that if we put all of this um, on the plate of the GP, then we will have problems. Then when, if I um, go to my, if I get, if, if I sort of get this and this and this and this according to guidelines from my GP, then when my neighbor has really serious problem, maybe symptoms of cancer or other serious diseases or 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 suicidal thoughts or or something really serious, then they won't have get access to the GP to to discuss it. So I think it's like I said, I don't think that individuals should decide what's right or wrong in this. It should be a community understanding and communicating about the opportunity costs and understanding what we do in medicine through a lens of sustainability, I think will help in this deliberation. Um, but I definitely think that the role of GPs need to be reconsidered. The role of healthcare needs to be reconsidered. And, and the pandemic has shown that, but we had the problem long time before that. That is really interesting. Thank you. Our conversation will continue in just a moment after this break from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. 
Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now we're back to Deep Breath In, talking with Mina Johansson about the time needed to treat. I just wanted to pick up on something we started to get into before the break. Um, And this is kind of looking at this concept of time needed to treat from the patient perspective. You know, um, I don't know that patients kind of consciously think in advance of, you know, an encounter with their healthcare provider about how there's going to be limited time and they, you know, I'm not sure how many people really conscientiously prioritize things to discuss in any given appointment or even over the course of months or a year. And I wondered um, kind of what time needed to treat begins to mean for patients and if people had more awareness of the kind of um, competing um, guidelines, whether it would change the way that patients think about their kind of 20 or 30 minutes of time with their GP each year. Well, I, I think to, to start off, I just want to say that the whole point with with the time needed to treat is is to um, is to improve care for patients. I mean, this this idea or this thinking for me personally comes from working as a GP for thirteen years in a, in the same healthcare center, being extremely frustrated every day that I don't have the time uh, for the stuff that really matters for my patients. Uh, I don't. Some patients. I mean. In some consultations, we spend a lot of time on, on stuff that is of very limited importance, while the patient actually has something of much more importance that they want to share with me, but we don't have the time. And and some pa- patients, many patients, don't even get to see me. And, and unfortunately, that's a higher proportion of those patients that are living with disadvantage facing disadvantages so it's it's very it's a cruel system that we that we work in currently so uh, this is a massive frustration that i think that many of my colleagues experience and and the patient experiences it so like it's i think uh, as you say the tnt concept might be like abstract and not really fit with the with the feelings of patients, but but I mean, the feeling of not getting time uh, in healthcare, that's, I think many, many patients feel that. Very difficult to access care, very difficult to get an appointment. When they are there, they can only say one problem, even though they have five, or they, they are interrupted very quickly with from the agenda of the, of the, of the clinicians. They, they don't get the unhurried conversation that Victor Montori talks about. They don't get listened to. So I think that, I mean, this is, it, the idea with, as I said before, I think it's very important that the TNT concept is not used to micromanage the consultation because what happens in the consultation should be sacred. It's it's between the patients and, and the clinician and it's a dance and it's it's 
it shouldn't be, we have a huge problem with this micromanagement of what happens within the consultation that really counteracts patient-centeredness. Um, and I think that's terrible. So, so uh, like, again, the, the, one of the reasons that I got uh, very frustrated about this was that I feel in my work that I, I could, e I, I mean, I, I serve about 1,500 people as a GP in Sweden, and I could easily spend all that time discussing pros and cons of different screening interventions, of treatment, pros and cons of the different the pharmaceuticals for mild hypertension, or very relevant in the UK now, the pros and cons of treating with statins for people at low risk. I could easily spend all the time, all my time on that. And to some degree, I, I do spend a lot of time on that. But, <laughs> but I mean, I don't have time to, the consequence of doing that is that I don't have time to listen to the patient carefully to see maybe, maybe some of my patients have suicidal thoughts. And I go on with this, you know, screening intervention stuff, but, but they don't give the time. I don't have the intention to listen to the patient. Or if I have patients with, with a really severe depression, I don't have time to see them again soon enough um, to, to, um, to care for them properly. Um, and, or, or other, I mean, there are so many examples of, of, of things that I don't have time for. And it's a bit, I mean, it's, it's so strange because we have never spent more money on healthcare as a society. And yet all healthcare personals that constantly feel that we don't have time. That's so contradictory. And there's something fundamentally problematic with the way we understand time. I guess it feels like what you're talking about is, you know, this is the product of a very medicalized society where um, a few years ago, I read in, in a newspaper, a quote from somebody from a, a cholesterol charity saying you should definitely have a conversation with your GP about cholesterol every year. Um, mm. <laughs> and I was like, you know, obviously tearing my hair yeah. out at that idea. <laughs> and frankly, most people don't do that. But if they did, then no. like, like you say, that would be almost the whole system flooded. Um, but yeah. everywhere, you know, I, you're right. I, I, you can never blame somebody for coming in and just doing what society no. tells them to do, which is to get that mold checked or see about that cough mm. or um, get your cholesterol, PSA, all these other tests that, that you're constantly mm. told you must do or you, you might die prematurely or end up like that person yeah. off the telly. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like... Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but but I think exactly. I mean, it's so easy that we sort of blame the patients for this, but but they like it's not strange that you ask for this because the guidelines tell us and and the quality metrics and the financial incentives for for clinicians many oftentimes. So I think that we need to rethink this. We need to think about a new a new way of thinking about this. Um, and I think one step in in that direction is is for guidelines to consider clinician time as a finite resource that needs to be carefully prioritized. But the whole idea with that is to improve care for patients. And I think this, this idea that Victor Montori and, and his team and the many different teams work with is of unhurriedness in the conversation is, I think, really crucial. And we have gotten so far away from that in, in healthcare today. And the, this elegance of, of the conversation between two people where you try to understand each other and try to understand what matters uh, in the consultation, that's, that's really important. I very much agree. And um, also, I mean, was fantastic to have Victor Montori along with Dominique Allwood contributing an essay on this in our most recent Christmas mm -hmm. issue, um, which I would recommend to everybody. 
But I, as I was listening um, just now to both of you, I was thinking, you know, there's also an element, and maybe this is just me, but there's also an element, you know, when I see like red that I meant to click and turn green in my EHR mm. or when I am going through, you know, patient encounters at the end of the day and realizing, oh, I didn't talk to this person about, yeah. uh, about um, you know, a pap smear. I, I didn't do this person's cardiovascular risk screen. Like, I personally feel guilt. Like, mm. I am not doing a good job by these patients because I'm yeah. failing to implement all of these evidence-based guidelines. And I, I, I'm not sure if that's something that has come up in any of the reactions that you've gotten to TNT. Absolutely. I mean, there's been, like I said in the beginning, the response has been almost overwhelming. There's been like from such a broad range of people that lots of patients have contacted me, clinicians, many GPs, of course, but also different kind of organ specialists, nurses, physiotherapists, policymakers, politicians. There's been such a, a, a massive response, um, which is fantastic. But I think this this guilt and it's it's also so it's so strange. I mean, you could have the most a really, really good consultation where you really listen to the patient, you understand what matters, you help them solve the problems that they come with you to to you with. And yet they they leave and you feel guilt because you didn't do a good job. I mean, what is that? It's, exactly. It's, it's strange, right? So and but, but that said, I think it's always important to have the balance because some interventions we have to accept that we have an agenda that is probably good for the patient too. So it's a balance between it. Like, for example, if someone comes in and, and, and talks about some problem and then they say in a byline that, I mean, I also have bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, then of course I, as a doctor, need to have the agenda to, to, to discover like what's, what is this and, and do we need to investigate it further? So there's a balance in it, but I think this, I mean, this really goes back to the, the importance of being patient-centered, like starting every consultation with how are you or like an open question uh, to give the to put the power back to the patient. What we're, what we're going to discuss, I'm, I'm, I think, is really Do you, really do you find the how are you? I, I keep saying, oh, how are you? And they're like, oh, I wouldn't be here, doc, if I was all right. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I keep <laughs> saying it anyway. I can't. Yeah, maybe. I think also like many, I think patients are not sort of used anymore to to uh, being free to talk about yeah. what they want to or having there. And that's also a bit sad. Uh, mm. But yeah, I mean, different. I think it's nothing is universal. It's it, different things works in different contexts and for different personalities. Uh, but it's just to have to have a discussion that how do we actually uh, work patient centered how do we how do we uh, have these unhurried conversations and how do we have a system that facilitates that instead of hinders it i think that's very important i guess we talked before haven't we about um because you can't measure it you, you you can't incentivize it and yeah. mm -hmm. um i think there's probably some if clever people than me could make a similar case about things that you can make pop up onto an electronic health record. You can't say, did you have an unhurried conversation? No. But you, you can say, <laughs> you didn't discuss the risks of ibuprofen and you haven't documented this yeah. and that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, 
and and we should be really careful to to measure unhappiness too. Like <laughs> I think we shouldn't go there. But I it's, I mean that's a general problem in society, isn't it? I think teachers have. I was actually interviewed for Teachers Magazine around around time needed to treat in Sweden because they said, well, we have the same issue for teachers. So I think it's it's a cultural movement where we don't trust professionals anymore. Uh, we need to we. We think that we need to micromanage everything that is happening, control everything, and and measure everything. And as you say, the stuff that we can measure is absolutely not always the most relevant stuff. And we don't consider the opportunity costs of what uh, uh, of what we choose to tie to financial incentives or quality metrics. Like, for example, in my healthcare center, I don't get funding. I don't get money myself for for doing the stuff in the quality metrics, but my healthcare center do. So if I don't follow it, we might have to fire a nurse. So that's what I'm, I'm dealing with. So we have to, I mean, it's very difficult. Like, for example, some of the some of the guideline people in response to TNT have said like, well, I mean, you don't have to follow the guidelines. It's only guidance. Well, if they're tied to quality metrics and financial incentives, it's very difficult to not do it because either mm-hmm. you, Either you have to, it don't, doesn't become financially viable. I have to fire one of my colleagues, like, or, or um, you you get the quality metric saying that you're a very bad doctor. Like, like you don't want that either. So it's it's not that easy, I think, to ignore it. Yeah, I I definitely um, hear that, and I'm curious about some of the other reactions that you've gotten. Well. I, to to my sort of surprise, it's been like ninety nine point nine percent has been extremely positive, uh, and I think, like I said before, or, or it, I, I really or I really want to make clear that first of all, it's to give credit to my co-authors Gordon Guyet and, and Victor Montoria. This was really a team thing writing this this piece, this analysis piece, but also to the many many people that have worked really hard on these issues for for decades. Like for example, the papers that we cite in the in the paper, um, so this is in a way really not something new. It's more like a, way, a new, a slightly new way to communicate the problem. And I think that I'm, I've been thinking, like, because the method is very also very simple. <laughs> so I, 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 I've been feeling a bit guilty for all the attention around it. But of course, it's fantastic that this issue gets so much attention. But I think one of the major reasons for that is I think that it is a clear way of communicating the problem like you you get it like okay so if this guideline on brief advice for physical activity would take 15% of gp's time to implement and there's no evidence of any benefit then maybe we need to take a step back and think is this really worth the time so the opportunity cost becomes like very clear and and up on the on the table um but i think that it could definitely be mis. I think what you're asking is, could it be misused, mm. right? Or yeah, I think one one reaction that has been a bit, a bit negative is that well, the things that take takes time is the the lifestyle interventions or or the more complex behavioral interventions, and TNT will sort of um, make them less tempting, and instead mm. it will be more medicalizing. Like okay, so it's much mm. uh, easier to give a pill than to make people. Uh, lose weight or, or whatever. Um, but I think that, and I, I can understand that, uh, I can understand that that reaction. And I think there's, it needs to be like carefully, um, carefully thought through how to, how to use it. But I mean, if, if we have great behavioral interventions that 
are not implemented it's it will still be a massive problem like because we don't we don't do um yeah i suppose one one reason sorry i lost myself yeah um i guess the the thing that takes the least time to do as a as a gp is <clears throat> prescribe or you know refer or or is there a <laughs> i'm not sure i haven't worked this through before opening my mouth but mm. um <laughs> i love that is, is, there, <laughs> is there something around that we like, need to say we need to say more things before we yeah. think <laughs> <laughs> um you know like the prescription for antibiotics you know, which often the patient isn't actually there for but if, you, if, if they are then and you say yes to that quickly then in theory you've got mm. a bit more time to talk about other things or as inevitably yeah. the person might be oh by the way can I talk about my mood or something else like um could could this principle have these kind of maybe slightly unwelcome consequences in that way Mm. I think if it would be applied without any thought, it might it might have. But that's what we do in in, in, in medicine, isn't it? We just say this <laughs> no, is now I, the rule. We almost do that until we realise. <laughs> but I, like, I really want to stress that this the TNT estimates is one piece of the puzzle. Like, it has to be it has mm. to be understood in relation to the benefits, the harms, the priority of the problem, the the uh, uh, financial costs, and and acceptability feasibility and all that other issues and i think like if we, we th take the antibiotic example as one example i think that really shows our understanding of everything through the individual lens like when i started uh, as a gp 13 years ago, ago at my healthcare center it was really difficult to convince people not taking antibiotic for for viral infections now it's not it's it's not hard at all it's like kicking in an open door it's almost difficult to to uh, convince people that they need antibiotics <laughs> when they have a serious bacterial infection. And why is that? I mean, it's not because I have had a discussion with each individual uh, of my 1500 patients, like that's not the reason. The reason is the understanding in the community that we need to have a common responsibility for the antibiotics that we have. So it's been like mass media campaigns, it's been like the, it's been like a democratic process in the community that has led us here. Um, so I think that like you could say that, OK, so it's easier for GPs to just prescribe the pill. Yes. Where is the where do we have this problem and where is the solution? Is it to for each like, for example, MRIs for low back pain? We know that we shouldn't do them. We know it's a low value care. Uh, yet I do them quite often. <laughs> Because, because like it's very difficult to take that discussion with with each individual every time and and the time pressure. So we need we need a bigger discussion around this. We need like we need we need the implementations. We need strategies that are not focused on the individual. Uh, I think that's the yes. solution. And, and, so, and, and maybe go back to the that it might nudge a guideline recommendation from a, a strong recommendation to a. A weak recommendation, something like it's it's another nudge to take into in exactly. with everything else. Yeah, and I also think that TNT shouldn't be used. It shouldn't be used for the fine like dis discussion. It's not like is it a two percent? If uh, it does it take two percent or three percent of the GP's time, and is that what's where's the cut up? That's not the kind of decisions that it should be used for. There's so many low hanging fruits 
in, in guidelines, I think. I mean, when we talk about primary prevention, it's, it's usually a lot of discussion on like the exact risk reduction. For example, in colorectal cancer screening in the, in the Nordic trial, we, there's a lot of discussion on like, is it a 0.2% absolute risk reduction or is it 0.3% absolute risk reduction? Or is it like, it's, it's a lot of discussion around that uncertainty around the exact estimates. But the, 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 the uncertainty of, is this worth the human, research, human resources that we put into it? And what are the opportunity costs? Is it worth the opportunity costs as in, in our community? That's the uncertainty around that is much, it's like exponentially larger, <laughs> but we don't deal with it. Like, so it's, it becomes like a focus on, on the, on the exact estimates around the evidence, which is like a minor issue in, 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 in the, uh, in the context, I think, I believe. Thanks to our guest, Mina Johansson, and thanks to Tom Nolan for joining me. To read more about the time needed to treat, have a look at bmj.com or check out the link in the show notes to this podcast. You've been listening to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Deep Breath In is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to hear more nuanced conversation about the thorny issues in primary care. Until next time, bye from all of us.